ministry, and if you would like to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, we'll be in Acts chapter 10, and we'll start reading in approximately uh, verse 9 or so. Acts chapter 10, verse, verses 9, and let's read all the way through to verse 23 to begin with. The next day, now we'd already discussed last week the story of Cornelius, and so that's the first part of chapter 10, the story of Cornelius hearing from the Lord, receiving a vision to send for Peter. And now we find out what Peter's up to. In verse 9, the next day, as they, Cornelius' people, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. What God, uh, this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made their inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you might have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We'll be spending most of our time this morning looking at the three verses in between verses 10 and 13, specifically the vision that Peter receives. In verse 10, it says he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And this is one of those classic moments where he's hungry, but the the host hasn't even started uh, basting the asabuco yet. You know, he's got three hours of cooking left to get the meal ready. You know, he's hungry. The meal's not ready. They were preparing it. He falls into a trance and he sees heaven opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So let's just let's just consider for a moment how much God loves talking about food. Uh, right at the very beginning of creation, one of the very first things God says to Adam and Eve is, eat. This is, you can eat this stuff. I made this to eat. I made you to have a, a, a caloric need. 
And here is this food, and I made you to be able to experience all these different tastes. And so, so eat. Just don't eat that, right? Right from the very beginning in the Bible, food is a primary plot driver for so much of the development of the story of Bible, the Bible. You go from the obvious, which is eating from the forbidden fruit versus eating from the tree of life. So it's like right there at the very beginning. And then you go right to the very next story with Cain and Abel. And what are they offering to God? They're offering food. One of them's raising sheep and one of them's growing produce out of the ground. And, and, and what do they offer to God? They offer the things that they eat. And then, of course, you've got the wonderful development, wonderful to me anyway, of, of the post-Noahic uh, experience in which God tells Noah, you can eat meat now. That was good. Uh, Abraham, the story of Abraham moving in and out of Israel with the famines. Famines are a primary plot driver in the Bible as well. Like, how did Ruth become Ruth? How did Naomi become bitter? In part because of a famine. Again, the lack of food, the presence of food, all of this stuff is just coming at you over and over again as you read through your scriptures. Joseph, the whole story of Joseph and his his exile to Egypt and his provision of food for both that nation and saving his own people. And then, of course, what are they mostly griping about during the Exodus? You know, mostly food, right? The, most, most of the contentiousness of God's people toward God as they are wandering about in the wilderness preparing to enter the promised land is related to food. And what is the sign of the, of the promised land's goodness? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And what is the first fruit offered to them as evidence that this land is indeed good? The spies come back and return with fruit to sample and to see that God has provided for them a good land. And like I could go through every book of the Bible and show you how much God likes to talk about food and how, how, how integral food is to kind of our spiritual experience. But let me just skip to Jesus and, and where does Jesus first go after he is baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit? He goes into the wilderness. And what does he do in the wilderness? He's, he's there to be tested. And how is he to be tested? By not eating, right? By, 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 by going 40 days without food and drink. And then, of course, what's his first miracle? His first miracle is to turn water into wine. And one of the very first exorcisms you see Jesus performing is he drives a host of demons into a herd of pigs and of course when he calls peter the very first time peter and god have food conversations all of their conversations are are around food it seems so when he calls peter to himself to be a fisher of man what does he do he gives peter this massive catch of fish and essentially sort of sort of stockpiles some wealth for peter and the disciples like he just gave them like you know a couple months worth of of paychecks all in one fish catch. Um, then, of course, you've got the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. You've got all the agricultural parables. You have Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life. And before he leaves, to, or before he goes onto the cross, he gives us a sacrament, right? And what is that sacrament? It's the Lord's table. Food, food, food. When he reconciles with Peter after Peter denied him three times, he does so over breakfast, over a big catch of fish. And what he calls Peter to do explicitly, he says, do you love me? Three times, John 21. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what does he say? Tell Peter to do. Feed my sheep. 
feed my sheep over and over and over again. Food is a massive part of God's work in our lives, and it's honestly a more massive part of our lives. You know, not to be, uh, not to be especially crude right now, but some of you are getting ready to cover your kids' ears. Might not be a bad idea. No. Uh, uh, you know, when you're, around, when, you're, when you're around people that don't know Christ, they will routinely talk about sex and just saying this, it's just sex, just sex. Just sex. And to the Christian, you know, they, try to, they, try to make, they try to marginalize it and make it a nothing. You know, it's just sex. And to the Christian, we're like, well, that, there's no such thing as just sex. Like, like that's, just in, that's just full of meaning. It's full of spiritual meaning. It's full of truth and beauty and goodness, or it's full of sin and so on and so forth. So when we hear someone say just, we're like, well, it's not. It's not. But here's what I want to suggest to you. We, we might be saying it's just food. And, and we would be wrong about that. There's no just food. God, God is, is, has built this category into our lives to mean something. It always means something. And I just want to pause. This is obviously not the point of the text. But I just want to pause on this early first Sunday of the new year and say, I don't think that mindless eating is a good idea. I, I think that we should not be mere mindless grazers. We should see food with all of the meaning that God has installed in it, and it should be that sort of thing in our lives where we say, as Paul commands, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, let's do it to the glory of God. So, so it's interesting how far we can fall away from God's original intention for something. And I would just say that it, as, it, as it relates to food, we know inherently that there is more spiritual meaning going on than what we uh, readily admit. Because, for instance, when we talk about spiritual qualities, you know, the tongue has four senses, right? Uh, four tastes. Salty, sweet, bitter, and sour. And if you're a hipster, umami. That's the, that's the, that's the fifth one. Uh, uh, but uh, some of y'all thought that was pretty funny. Uh, um, think about this. Those four senses, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, all of them describe spiritual realities in the Bible. Bitterness is a spiritual reality in the Bible. Sweetness is a spiritual reality in the Bible. Sour, you know what I'm saying? So, so like there's something going on here. And, and I don't necessarily need to fill this category out. I don't think I can and tell you everything it means. I think that would be a mistake. I think it would be wiser of me simply to say, stuff's happening in this category of our lives that is perhaps deeper than we are culturally conditioned to acknowledge. Lots of us know there's something about food that's deeper than just fuel because we turn to it for comfort. We, we ask food to do a spiritual job for us. We ask food to do an emotional job for us. And we also know that, that fasting has some sort of God-assigned relevance to increasing our prayerfulness, uh, spiritual power or sensitivity, and so on. Again, lots of stuff going on with food. So, food is everywhere in the scriptures, and it's in our story. It's central in our story. Peter is on a rooftop. He is hungry. This is not, by the way, a normal time for a person of that age to be hungry. We may infer one way or another that God has created this moment of hunger and withheld his providing hand to satisfy the hunger. In other words, God is creating 
a conversation subject with Peter. He's made him hungry. There's no food available for him to eat. You know, you sometimes might ask, like, I have this need in my life. Why hasn't God met this need? Well, he's probably just wanting to have a conversation with you. He's probably wanting to teach you something, to talk to you about something. That's where we find Peter. Peter is hungry. There's no food at the moment because God wants to have a conversation, yet another conversation with Peter around the subject of food. And the only way that God is able to have this conversation with Peter about food is because to Peter, food isn't just food. Peter is more sensitive than we are, I think, to the spiritual stuff going on around the subject of eating. We'll see that in a moment. He has many uh, food scruples, you might say. And so the sheet is lowered down, verse 10. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, falls into a trance, and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Let's unpack this vision as best as we can. This detail of the four corners, something is lowered down from heaven on a sheet, and that phrase, by its four corners upon the earth, I think is key. Four corners and earth are used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to just like the whole earth like the four corners of the earth. So I think there's a clue here that God is discussing something universal or comprehensive with Peter. And there's a second piece of evidence to support that suggestion, and that is the list of animals provided in this vision fit a very Genesis-like list of in Genesis, every once in a while, it will want to talk about, like, all the animals. Or just, you know, fauna in general, right? Uh, and, and when it does, it will, it will do something like this. It's, it's this sort of comprehensive. There's these kinds of animals listed here. So I think what we're seeing here, whatever God is saying to Peter, it has something to do with the kind of whole world, with the, with the, whole, with the way God is seeing everything there's a universality to this language. The animals included, the four corners of the earth. There's some kind of universality going on. And three times in the vision, Peter needs to be talked to three times a lot. Uh, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Which, as hard as it might be for you to imagine, is basically like go to the grocery store. You know, this sheet was Peter's Aldi's. You know, like just go find something you want to eat kill it, and cook it. That's the vision. That's the command. And, uh, and Peter rejects this three times. And it's not because he isn't hungry, right? He's obviously hungry. But why would he say over and over again, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Because unlike us, unlike us good Christian pagans who will eat literally anything, uh, you can boil one thing and another thing's melt. Like, we're, we're good. Like, we're fine. We have ham on Easter to celebrate the new covenant, you know? Like, like we, we have basically no scruples with food. Peter is not that way. He's, he's really in touch with the Old Testament teachings that God has provided uh, to Peter and to the Jews re- related to food. So for Peter, you know, if someone said, well, it's just food, like, he'd be like, What? No, that's just not the way this works. That's not how any of this works. 
There's more to food than just food. So Peter says no, because actually he's conditioned and taught by God's word to not eat a bunch of this stuff. Some of you probably know about the kosher laws and so on and so forth, and you know something about the Old Testament dietary restrictions. I certainly won't review all of that this morning. I just want to take you to one text that explains God's basic purpose. It's like, why did God in the Old Testament prohibit his people from eating certain things? Well, there's a lot of texts about this, but I'll just show you one that gives you the direct explanation. So that would be Leviticus 20, verses 23 through 26. Just a straight explanation. He says, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I myself am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, therefore I abhor him, abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean. Between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make your souls detestable by beast or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you might belong to me. So why did God, the the, the two-thirds of this passage are related to food prohibitions, but he explains why the food prohibitions exist in the first third, and that is, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I myself am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. I I ordered a book early last week. You guys all know that, that Amazon's having a little struggle right now. Some of you are still getting Christmas presents. Uh, so I didn't get the book. But there's a textbook called Food is Culture. And it's just this expansive survey of this kind of idea that food is culture. Now, I didn't get the book, so all I have for you at this point is the book review and the title. Uh, The title is, I think, absolutely spot on. Food is culture. I think another way to say it is food is a language on its own. Food is deeply communicative. And it's packed with cultural meaning. From the book review, everything having to do with food, its capture, cultivation, preparation, and consumption represents a cultural act. So so food culture is what is at hand in this prohibition that God issues. Namely this. These people that are not walking with me, I don't want you fellowshipping with them. I don't want you spending time with them. I don't, I don't want you sharing a home with them. I don't want you intermarrying them. So God is sequestering his people because food is culture. He uses food prohibitions to say, you can't go hang out with those folks. And Peter understands what Jesus has done in this vision is to somehow lift that sequestering, isolating requirement to where this prohibition of hanging out with other people who don't walk in the ways of the Lord has been removed. That's the purpose of this vision. God is declaring to Peter, 
the way that I kept you separate from people before via food prohibitions has now been lifted. And I want you, actually, to go and sit and eat with people who don't know me. And Peter interprets this vision. We, we, don't, we aren't left to guess. It says in verse 28, when he's speaking with Cornelius' household, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. So through this vision, God has shown Peter that he should not call any person common or unclean. And that's Old Testament code for spiritual cooties, right? It's Old Testament code for uh, contagious worldliness. It's Old Testament code for if I hang around with you, you might tempt me to stop walking with God. And Peter has seen through this vision that that approach to keeping the people of God holy is no more. That, that, that approach has ended because a better approach has come. And that's the question we're asking this morning. Why did God change this? Why did God lift this? And first we would just say, uh, God, God had always intended for this prohibition to be temporary, and I'll explain why in a moment. But what is God doing? Why did he lift this? And what does that mean for us? So, so this, this would be a simple kind of outline of all that Christ has done. And, and the first thing we would say is this. Now we live in a blood-bought world. Now we live in a blood-bought world. Colossians 1.19 through 20 says, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did God lift this sequestering, uh, quarantining kind of requirement from the people of God and now call them to go out into the nations and sit with whomever will have you and share fellowship, share, share at least a, a conversation. Why did God lift that? Because now Jesus has bought all things. Not just one people. Not just one particular place on the map. Jesus has bought all things with his blood. And he is reconciling all things back to himself. So Peter's vision is global, the four corners of the earth, all of the animals. It's representative of everything, everything on the earth. And it is all Christ's, and therefore it is now all ours. We have been talking off and on for a couple months about bridal imagery in the Bible and how God will refer to his people as his bride. And one of the things we didn't unpack there that I thought would be wise to cover before we move too far beyond it is simply this. The glorious truth is, is that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ and Jesus does not keep separate checking accounts. Meaning, all he has is ours. All of his resources, all of the blessings in the heavenly places are now given to his bride as ours 
in Christ. Uh, Spurgeon says this so well, and it was actually this morning when I read my, uh, devotion, my Spurgeon devotional that I saw this. I just want to read this quote to you. It won't be in the slides. He says, Our blessed Jesus as God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Will it not console you to know that all these great and glorious attributes are altogether yours? Has he power? That power is yours to support and strengthen you, to overcome your enemies, and to preserve you even to the end. Has he love? Well, there is not a drop of love in his heart which is not yours. You may dive into that immense ocean of his love and you may say of it all, it is mine. Hath he justice? It may seem a stern attribute, but even that is yours, for he will by his justice see to it that all which is promised to you in the covenant of grace shall most certainly be secured to you. All that he has as a perfect man is yours. As a perfect man, the Father's delight was upon him. He stood accepted by the Most High. O oh, believer, God's acquaint acceptance of Christ is thine acceptance. For knowest thou not that the love which the Father set on a perfect Christ now rests on thee? Jesus doesn't keep separate checking accounts with his bride. All that he has, he now gives to his people, to the church. And so one of the things Peter is realizing through this vision is that the time of isolating one little place on a map or one little people is gone. And Jesus has, through his blood on the cross, reconciled all things to himself and now all things belong to Peter and to you and to me. The, the, the quarantine is over. There's a, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is trying to get people to move beyond this sort of party spirit where, where one person says, well, my main teacher is Paul, and another says, my main teacher is Peter, and so on. And, and, he, and he addresses that point by making a much greater and larger one. He says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God. So we now live in a blood-bought world in which all things have been purchased by Christ's sacrifice and given to his people as a part of their eternal inheritance. So we, we aren't separating things anymore. It's all ours. Politics is ours. Food is ours. China is ours. All things are Christ's, and therefore all things are ours. This, there's a wonderful book, and I would like to make this your number one kind of reach book uh, to read soon, in the next few months if possible, and it's a book called Bloodbot World by a man named Toby Sumter. And he says, this is the last paragraph of the book, he says, so this is the sum of it all. We aren't here to prove anything. We aren't here to make up for anything. We're here because we have met Jesus, the God who made us and all things. He died for us and took away all our sins. Now we love him and hate all evil. We love to talk to him in prayer. We love to feast in our homes and care for the weak. We rejoice in suffering. 
We give generously to all in need. We love to sing the old war songs of the church. We love to listen to him, particularly his word. We have been enlisted in his army through baptism, and we feast with his people at his table. And the world is before us. What will you do? Where will you explore? What will you confront? Whom will you befriend? Where will you bring healing? What will you create? We own this place. It belongs to us. Jesus bought it with his blood. So we live, first point, we live, we now live in a blood-bought world. Second point, we now have been born again. We have now been born again. Those who are in Christ, now how does this relate to this, this, this lifting of the prohibition? Those who are in Christ are given new natures. We are no longer tossed to by every wind. The world is simply not as tempting as it once was. I think it used to be, you could adequately say in, 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 in the old covenant, without, without regeneration, without being born again, the whole thing between good and evil was a, was a, a, a match of tug of war. Right? It was, just a, it was just like, well, I don't know who's going to win. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, these people still love to sin. They're obeying the law. They don't, they don't have love in their hearts toward the Lord. They haven't been given new natures. They still, they still love to sin. But now this, this need to sequester and quarantine the people of God from all of these people who are potentially ne'er-do-wells and enticers, that has been lifted to a great extent. Galatians tells us that the law was a custodian or a guardian. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Think of the law, the thing which Peter is thinking he still needs to care about in, in this very particular way. Think of the law as a guardian, as a parent. The law treated the people of God like children because they were. They were easily deceived, easily manipulated, easily enticed. And so the law, like a good parent, gives them curfews and dress codes and makes sure they eat their vegetables, right? It created rules to attempt them from falling in with the bad kids. Now, if you've raised children, you know that there is a critical season of time in which you're raising your kids and you're very mindful about the company they keep. You're very mindful about the TV that they watch, so on and so forth. And my kids have plenty of stories of our nonsensical rules related to not watching Dragon Tales and so on and so forth. And, and, and the, the, the many ways in which they were tempted to violate these, these rules. But here's the great thing. Lord willing, as your kids grow in Christ, suddenly they become the danger. Then my kids... Then I was concerned to keep my kids from the danger of being corrupted. And I'm still mindful of that and thoughtful of that and so on. But if they are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. They have new desires. They have new affections. They love the Lord. And so now they go to place that now, now it's, it's exactly the opposite. They're a danger to the darkness in the places that they work. They're a danger to the darkness in the places they go to college. They're a danger to the darkness in the places they associate. Why? Because now they are not on co-equal tug-of-war terms with the forces of evil. They are Christ's. They have his nature. 
They have his affections. They are rooted and grounded in eternal truth. They are held securely by a shepherd who no one will be able to snatch out of their hands. And suddenly something pivots when this new nature comes. When they're kids and they don't know Jesus, or maybe they're just really young in Jesus. I, I cared, I watched everything like a hawk. I was careful. I, I tried to make sure that they wouldn't fall under undue influence and so on. I'm still concerned about that, but not in the same way. These days, when my kids enter an environment, I assume, well, all of those sinners are in trouble. Like, they're going to have to have a reckoning with the truth of the gospel. They're going to have to, 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 to come up with some evidence for why these kids are the way they are and so on and so forth. So what is God doing in lifting these fruit, these food prohibitions? Well, the law was a guardian. All it could do was restrain and restrict. But now a great shift has occurred. As we went to God as children, we grew up in him. We entered the kingdom as children and we're growing up in him. And so now... God's people are simply not, not as prone to being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. And here's a great, a great indicator for you. This new nature that we've received in Christ should bear fruit in, in making an individual hate worldliness. In, in making an individual more contagious to others than, than influenced by others. And so if we're still thinking that we have to use the law as a means of corralling our, our younger people, let's look at whether they've been born again or not. Let's, let's examine that. And, and that's not an indictment because we don't believe that being born again is a, is, a, is, is, a, is a mark of our effort. Let's ask, like, has this person had received new affections and a new nature and new desires and so on and so forth? In which case, do they have to be wise? Of course. Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. Like, of course you have to be wise. There, there are many ongoing concerns about worldliness in the New Testament. But as an explanation for why God has lifted this, this custodial segregation from the world, this is the explanation. The world has been bought by Jesus and his people have been given new natures which make them not nearly so impressionable as they were without the Holy Spirit. Again, one last quote from that book I hope you'll read. Toby Sumter says, When people know the real Jesus, they become real men and real women, really human. And that makes them bold, creative, fearless, compassionate, and glad. When people know Jesus, they know they have nothing to lose, nothing to fear, and the world is before them. And Jesus sends them out with his blessing to discover, invent, create, rule, bless, heal, explore, and die with smiles on their faces because they know the man who is truly alive and now they can't stay dead anymore. Point three. Further explanation for why this expansive Vision has been given to Peter to throw off his old culinary scruples and now enter the home of whomever will have him bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is another way you could say this is we now have the ball. We now have the ball. The Old and New Testaments are a bit like a weird football game in which the first half, one team gets the ball and that first half 
that team plays offense the whole half. And in the second half, the other team plays offense the whole half. Now, this metaphor has a significant weakness, but I want you to stick with me. The significant weakness is this. God has never once in his entire existence played defense, right? God is entirely in control of all things. He's not surprised. There is no plan B. God is never on his heels. He never goes, whoa. So that part of the metaphor isn't great. The part of the metaphor that is great or good or workable is that the law was a defensive institution. It is as if God said through the old covenant to Satan, you get the ball for the next few thousand years. Let's see, how much, let's see what you can do. Put, put up as many points as you think you can. I'll put my team on defense for a few thousand years. You, you put your team on offense for a few thousand years, and let's see how many points you can put on the board. But now, Christ has come. And we are in the second half. The last days. Our quarterback has taken the field. We have the ball. We're playing offense. We have the ball, and we won't be giving it back. Not ever. And in the end... The Bible promises that this game will be a blowout for the side of Christ. And we humble saints will carry our star captain off the field in jubilation and triumph. We are no longer a defensive entity. The Old Testament was about containment. We've been talking about dragons a fair amount over the last several months. Let's say the Old Testament was a bunch of dragon warning signs and dragon guardrails and dragon police tape keeping you from getting too close to the dragon. But now the king has come and we live in a covenant of offense and we are storming the gates of hell and they will not prevail. And we, God's lowly people under the headship of Jesus Christ, will be putting our feet on the serpent's neck. We live in a blood-bought world. We have been born again. And we now have the ball. Why, why, why did the restrictive, defensive requirements of Old Testament food laws get lifted? Because all things are now ours. And even though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what is the meaning of Peter's vision? God has bought the world with his blood. Don't call anything unclean which has been purchased by him. He has reconciled all things to himself, though, as Hebrews says, at the present time, we do not see all things reconciled. He's telling Peter to stop playing cultural defense and to get out into the world and feast on the nations. All things are yours. And there's one final point to be made, and it's highly practical. Why lift these restrictions? Because God's one of God's primary means of spreading the goodness of his gospel into the world involves sitting down with people who don't know him over breakfasts and lunches and dinners and coffees 
and sharing the goodness of Christ one dinner table at a time. The lifting of this restriction has all sorts of theological implications, but it also tells us directly one of the most practical means that God will use for thousands of years to spread the glory of his name throughout all the earth, and that is enter a household and eat what they set before you and then set Christ before them. Thousands of years. That's been the way. God is opening that way to us as he has opened it to saints forever. We now get the opportunity to stop playing cultural defense because we have a culture. We have all things in Christ. And only through God's goodness, only through his kindness, can we say, you know, the world's really more trouble from us than we are from them because, what does the scripture say? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you for, 